Take your Bibles and turn to Luke chapter 10, please. Luke chapter 10. This morning we're going to consider another parable. And the last few weeks there's been parables that have presented, been presented here uh, from the pulpit. And we're going to consider another one today. And it's probably maybe one of the more well-known. Uh, if, if people were to be asked, you know, what, what did you learn as a kid or what parables of Jesus did you, do you remember most? The parable of the Good Samaritan uh, might be one of the most popular or well-known. Uh, however, as is often the case, the parable of the Good Samaritan goes a lot deeper uh, than most people consider. And so we're going to look at it today in Luke chapter 10. We're going to start in verse 25. And we're going to work our way down through verse 37. I want to read this whole portion for you first. And we're going to do a little uh, introductory type uh, study. And then we're going to unpack the parable itself and see what Jesus is saying. But you follow along as I read in verse 25. And behold, a certain lawyer stood up and tempted him, saying, Master, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? He said unto him, what is written in the law, or how, re- or how readest thou? And he answering said, Thou shalt love the Lord thy God with all thy heart, and with all thy soul, and with all thy strength, and with all thy mind, and thy neighbor as thyself. And he said unto him, Thou hast answered right, this do, and thou shalt live. But he, willing to justify himself, said unto Jesus, And who is my neighbor? And Jesus answering said, A certain man went down from Jerusalem to Jericho and fell among thieves, which stripped him of his raiment and wounded him and departed, leaving him half dead. And by chance there came down a certain priest that way, and when he saw him, he passed by on the other side. And likewise a Levite, when he was at the place, came and looked on him and passed by on the other side. But a certain Samaritan, as he journeyed, came where he was, and when he saw him, he had compassion on him and went to him and bound up his wounds, pouring in oil and wine, and set him on his own beast and brought him to an inn and took care of him. And on the morrow, when he departed, he took out two pence and gave them to the host and said unto him, Take care of him, and whatsoever thou spendest more, when I come again, I will repay thee. Which now of these three thinkest thou was neighbor unto him that fell among thieves? And he said, He that showed mercy on him. Then said Jesus unto him, Go and do thou likewise. Now, as I said, the story of the Good Samaritan is maybe one of the most well-known parables of Jesus. Uh, It has an influence on our society, even today. There are hospitals that are named after the Good Samaritan. Uh, They've be the, the phrase, a good Samaritan, like a person who helps somebody out, out, you know, you even hear it in culture. Oh, that person was a good Samaritan. It's become an idiom for unusual kindness or extraordinary care of people in need. That's something that still affects our society today. We have things called good Samaritan laws in our country. And the the Good Samaritan laws are there to protect from liability those who would choose to go out of their way to aid others who are injured and, and ill, and so they go to help them, and then something happens, and now this person is liable because they were showing an act of kindness. So we have these Good Samaritan laws in our country that help people or keep them from liability when they're just trying to help somebody else out. To be called a good Samaritan is to pay somebody a compliment. Everybody follow this? Everybody understand where we're going here? Okay, so it affects our society today. But while this parable is popular 
And while it's maybe one that's familiar, it's not always understood correctly. It's common to sort of just skim over a story, especially when you're familiar with it. But I don't want to do that today. This morning, what I want us to do is I want, to, I want us to ask the Lord to help us to look a little bit deeper, to see the purpose of this parable, and ask the Lord to use it in our life to, to move us closer to Him. Because there's a particular reason why Jesus gave this story. And you know what a parable is. It's a story. But it's a story that illustrates a truth. There's a central truth that Jesus is trying to get across here. And it's not just a story of unusual kindness. That's not the purpose of this parable. And so I want us to understand what Jesus is actually saying. So let's put it in context first, okay? The parable itself, but it's given inside of a context. And so I want us to put it in the context itself. And so before we unpack that and before we study it, Let's look back to verse 25, because there's two basic structural divisions that are happening here, and each one of them is prompted by a question. You're going to notice, as we read here, there are two questions that are asked. Now, in verse 25, notice with, with me first, Behold, a certain lawyer stood up and tempted him, saying, Master, what shall I do to inherit eternal life. There's the first question. This lawyer, this particular Bible scholar, and I'll tell you what he, what he is or what he was in those days in just a minute. But he's talking to Jesus, and he's trying to, the Bible says, tempt Jesus. He's testing him. What he's doing is he's trying to discredit Jesus. And he's a scholar of the Old Testament law. And he presents this question to Jesus, and he says, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? Now, the Bible says that this man is a lawyer. What it means is that he was a law expert. It means that he was adept at understanding the Old Testament. If you were to put it in terms of today, he would have had a PhD in Old Testament history. In other words, he understood the Old Testament law probably like none other. And what the Bible tells us is that he was wanting to put Jesus to the test. He was hoping to trip Jesus up somehow so people would stop listening to Jesus. Specifically, this scholar was heresy hunting. In other words, what he was doing is he was trying to find fault with Jesus, trying to discredit him in the eyes of other people so people wouldn't respect Jesus. That's what he was trying to do. All right, everybody follow that? But notice the contradiction in his question. He's wondering, what must I do to inherit eternal life. Now, what is an inheritance? Is that something that you work for? Is that something that you strive for? Is it, or is it something that is given to you? So he says, what must I do to inherit? An heir, a son who was an heir, would inherit his father's wealth. What did the son have to do to earn it? It's inherited. It's given to him. So do you see the contradiction in his question here? He says, I want to inherit or be an heir of eternal life. And inheritance is not something that is worked for. It's a gift. Now look at verse 26. He said unto him, now these are Jesus' words, What is written in the law? How readest thou? All right, so Jesus, as he often did, he turns the question back on the person who is asking the question, knowing what was in the heart of this lawyer. And notice what Jesus said. Jesus said, what is written in the law? So this guy's a law expert, right? So Jesus turns it back to him and says, well, you know, you're a law expert, what's written in the law. But then he says, how readest thou? And what that means is, in other words, how do you interpret what you know is written in the law? You understand that? So, notice that Jesus took him back to the authority of the Scriptures. And that's what we ought to do as well in our daily life. We should always go to the authority of the Scriptures. 
But the Bible tells us this man answered correctly, and he answered correctly by citing Scripture. He quotes Deuteronomy chapter 6 and verse 5. He quotes Leviticus 19 and verse 18 when he says, Thou shalt love the Lord thy God with all thy heart and with all thy soul and with all thy mind, and love thy neighbor as thyself. Now look at verse 27. That's where we quoted this. He answering said, Thou shalt love the Lord thy God with all thy heart and with all thy soul and with all thy strength and with all thy mind and thy neighbor as thyself. You know what he didn't do? He didn't do like, hmm, I don't really know what this answer is. He immediately answered the question with Scripture. It tells us that he knew Old Testament law. Okay? Now look at verse 28. And he said unto him, Thou hast answered right, this do, and thou shalt live. So what was his question? His question is, what must I do to inherit eternal life, right? That was his question. And Jesus says, well, what's written in the law? You know the law. How do you interpret that? He answers the right question, to love God with all of your heart, all of your soul, and all of your mind, and love your neighbors yourself. And then Jesus says, okay, do that, and you'll live you'll have an inheritance of eternal life. Now, does that seem like a bit of a contradiction? Well, here's what Jesus is saying. We have to understand a couple words here. Notice that Jesus says in verse 28, he says, Thou hast answered right. The word right is the Greek word orthos. And it's where we get our word orthodoxy from. And it means a correct belief. It means right thinking. So Jesus says that's the correct belief. That's the right thinking. But then at the same time, he flips the tables to show that Jesus is actually the one who's the authority of the scriptures, not this guy. Because Jesus said, how do you interpret this? Jesus adds something. Not only does he say, thou hast answered right, that's the right belief, but he adds something here that becomes very unsettling to this lawyer. And he does so when he says, this do, and thou shalt live. It's the word orthopraxy, which means correct behavior. So, in other words, Jesus says, you've got it right with the answer, but the problem is you don't have the right behavior. So here it is. So somebody might be saying, well, is Jesus advocating for a works-based salvation here? Because he says this, do, and thou shalt live. Jesus is not advocating a works-based salvation, not at all. What he's saying is, is that if you want to use the law as leverage in order to get into heaven, then you've got to be faithful and you've got to follow everything that is in the law, always loving God with all of your heart, with all of your being, always loving God every second of every hour of every day with all of your heart and all of your soul and all of your strength and all of your mind from the day that you're born until the day that you die. The phrase, this do, it means to keep on doing forever and ever and ever. It means to never fail. It means to never mess up. It means to never let up. The word love that Jesus uses here, he says, he says the guy says you got to love God with all of your heart. The word love is in the present tense. It means continual. It means constant. It means continuously, not only loving God, but also including loving your neighbor perfectly all the time, without ever fail. So, what Jesus is doing is showing this law expert who thinks that he, because of his ability to keep the law and be obedient to the law, he thinks that he does. Because of those things, he thinks that he is right with God. He thinks that God has favor on him because of the things that he's doing. But what Jesus is showing is that the standard of God's holiness is not the standard that you are, project, are presenting. 
If you want to get in, Jesus says, and you want to use the law as leverage, then you've got to be perfect at it. One slip up with God's standard, and you're out. So this legal expert who thought that he had the upper hand on Jesus is all of a sudden condemned by the very law that he is quoting. Why? Because he's realizing he can't keep it perfectly. Nobody can. So the purpose of the law, according to the Word of God, is to show us our sin. You've heard of the Ten Commandments, the laws of God. There's lots more than that. But the Ten Commandments are probably the most common. And when you walk out on the street and you ask a person, uh, person, do you think you're a good person? They say, well, yeah, I think I'm a pretty good person. Do you try to obey the law? I keep the law of God. And they're familiar with the Ten Commandments. And we, we could go back into the Ten Commandments and we could look at them and we could say, well, the Bible says, thou shalt not bear false witness against thy neighbor. What is that? It's telling a lie. What do you call somebody who tells a lie? A liar. The Bible says that thou shalt not covet. Do you ever wish you had something that somebody else has and you wished it was yours? The Bible says thou shalt honor thy father and thy mother. Do you always, have you always honored your parents from the day that you were born and until the day, until today or the day that you die? Have you been perfect in all of those things? No. Nobody can say that. But often people think that if I try to be a good person and I keep the law, then I have favor with God. That's what this lawyer was trying to do. But the Bible tells us that the purpose of the law was never for us to, to try to keep it in order to have favor with God. The purpose of the law was to show us our sin and show us that we cannot meet the standard of God and His holiness. Go to Romans chapter 3 with me. Romans chapter 3 and verse 20. Therefore, by the deeds of the law, there shall no flesh be justified in his sight. For by the law is the knowledge of sin. In other words, it's the law that shows us that we are not good people, that we can't keep God's standard. That was the purpose of the law. The law not only shows us our sin, but it shows us that it's impossible for us to keep it all. In Galatians chapter 3, turn over there with me, please. Galatians chapter 3. And look at verse 10, Galatians 3 and verse 10. For as many as are of the works of the law are under the curse. For it is written, Cursed is everyone that continueth not in all things that are written in the book of the law to do them. He says there's a curse on anyone who doesn't continue completely and perfectly in all of the law to continue to do it. And there's nobody who can. And the purpose of the law is not to keep it or to try to merit favor with God through that, but to show us our sin, and not only show us our sin, but show us that it's impossible for us to meet God's standard of holiness. It shows us that if we don't keep it in every part all the time, then we're cursed. The Word of God also tells us that if you fail in one point, even one time, you're guilty of all. It's as if you've broken every single one of the laws of God. Go to James chapter 2. James chapter 2. In verse 10, For whosoever shall keep the whole law and yet offend in one point, he is guilty of all. In other words, when the link is broken, the whole chain is broken. You offend in one point, it's as if you are guilty of all the law. And so the purpose of the law is not in order to merit favor with God. It's to show us our sin. And the aim of the law is to lead us to Jesus Christ. Go to Galatians chapter 3 again, and I want you to see verse 24. Galatians chapter 3 and verse 24, the Bible says, Wherefore the law was our schoolmaster, to bring us 
unto Christ, that we might be justified by faith. The law then points out that we are sinners and that we're in desperate need of someone to save us. So we ought to understand the context that this parable is given in. Here's a man who thought himself worthy or thought himself to be justified in the eyes of God because of his keeping of the law. And Jesus says, well, what's written in the law? You want to inherit eternal life? You want eternal life? You want heaven? Well, if you're going to use the law as leverage for that, then you have to be perfect at it. And Jesus turns the tables on him, and he shows him there's no possible way that you can keep the law. You don't, even though you think you are. So then, let's go back to our text, because it goes a little deeper here. Notice in verse 29, then, of our text. So Jesus points it out. The guy sees it pretty clearly here. And he has an opportunity at this moment to admit what he is and to put his faith in Jesus Christ. He has an opportunity right now to humble himself because Jesus just exposes him for what he is. All right? Everybody understand that? But you need to get to verse 29. But he willing to justify himself, said unto Jesus, and who is my neighbor? So what is, what is it that Jesus says you have to do perfectly? you got to love God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. And you have to love your neighbor as yourself. That's in the law. you got to do it perfectly. And so here's an opportunity for this guy to understand and Admit what he is, but the Bible says, but he, willing to justify himself, says to Jesus, well, who really is my neighbor? You understand? So Jesus' response, and the response that Jesus gives really makes this guy pretty nervous here. He's probably regretting that he asked Jesus that question because now he's been exposed The man should have said something like this. He said, you know what, Master, you're right. I admit my inability. I can't keep the law of God perfectly. So what should I do? But instead, in verse 29, we see him start looking for loopholes. And that's when he asked this second question. And the Bible says that he wanted to justify himself. What was he wanting to justify? The fact that he couldn't keep the law of God perfectly. And so he asked Jesus, okay, well, who really is my neighbor? And so this man is now seeking to defend himself. He's seeking to deflect his accountability by asking for a definition of the word neighbor. He's hoping to be acquitted on a technicality inside of the law. Now, A little bit of background is helpful here because in that time, there was a raging debate about whom a neighbor really was. They wanted to know who was in and who was out of being considered the neighbor. Now, the Jews typically interpreted a neighbor as one who is near, meaning that if you're a fellow Jew then you're a neighbor. Anything outside of that, if you weren't Jewish, you weren't a neighbor. The Pharisees tended to reject even ordinary people. Even if they were Jews, they would still even reject them uh, if they weren't like them. And then there was a smaller community of religious leaders who excluded everybody who wasn't a part of their inner circle or a part of their group. And so this man wants Jesus to draw a circle for him. He wants him to define really what a neighbor is because, you know what, I can justify myself and say, well, I always love those in my inner circle or in my group. They're my neighbor. I always love them perfectly. See, I'm right with God. Everybody following that? Some of you are falling asleep. Am I losing you? Maybe you need to stand up and do some jumping jacks or something. 
We're getting to the passage. You need to understand this, though, because it sets the stage for what Jesus actually says. So this man wants Jesus to draw a circle, but it's a lot bigger. That circle's a lot bigger than what he was bargaining for. The lawyer wanted this legal limit so that he could maintain his status. He was trying to make the law say less than what it really did. But you know what? People do that all the time. Some rely on being a good person in order to get into heaven. Other people know that they're not all that good in the first place. And so what they do is they try to reduce God's entrance standards down to a place where they can feel justified themselves. Do people really think that they're good enough to get into heaven? Do people really believe that there's a divine scale that I do all of these good things, and yes, I do some bad things, but surely all my good things outweigh my bad things, and God is going to accept that because He knows my heart. He knows I'm a good person. That's what a lot of people do. That's how they think. Other people want to justify themselves by bringing God down to our level. They want to justify themselves by lowering God's standard so that I will feel justified. Well, that's the question that this man asked Jesus. Well, who is my neighbor? Well, Jesus doesn't directly answer the question, but instead, Jesus gives this parable. Instead, Jesus gives this story to illustrate a truth. And Jesus presents this simple case to show him the truth of God. Now, Jesus could have blasted this guy, but instead, What Jesus is doing is giving him one more chance to see his own heart, to see his own sinfulness. And on the surface, this parable seems to be a simple story about being kind, but it's actually much deeper than that. This story is all about Jesus Christ. The story is all about the sinfulness of men, the selfishness of men to show us what we really are and that our only hope of ever seeing heaven is to be justified in the eyes of God through the Lord Jesus Christ. Not by doing good works, not by being religious. That's the purpose of this story. Being, quote, good will never be good enough. Because the Bible says that in the eyes of God, there's none that doeth good. No, not And so I want us to look at this parable a little bit deeper here, and I've taken quite a bit of time to explain that, but I think it's important for us to understand what Jesus is actually saying here. He's not talking about just being kind. It actually shows the Lord Jesus Christ Himself. Let's pray, and then we'll begin. Heavenly Father, I pray that You'd help us now as we unpack this parable, and Lord, give grace to do it efficiently and quickly today. But Lord, I pray that the truth of God would not be missed the truth of thy word, that it would hit home in the hearts of people today. Lord, that the Spirit of God would have free course to work among us. And Lord, those who are not saved today, those who are without Jesus Christ, those who might be religious, and they think that they have some sort of relationship with God, and they're presenting all of the, quote, goodness that they offer as as earning favor with God. Lord, I pray that you show the sinfulness of our hearts today. And Lord, that there would be a heart that admits what we are and Lord, be willing to turn to Jesus Christ. And I pray that your will is accomplished and may it be done in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's look at the parable here again itself. Now notice that the Bible, in in verse 30, let's go to verse 30 because that's where we're at. And Jesus answering said, a certain man went down from Jerusalem to Jericho, and fell among thieves, which stripped him of his raiment and wounded him and departed, leaving him half dead. And by chance there came down a certain priest that way, and when he saw him, he passed by on the other side. And likewise a Levite, 
when he was at the place, came and looked on him and passed by on the other side. But a certain Samaritan, as he journeyed, came where he was, and when he saw him, he had compassion on him and went to him and bound up his wounds, pouring in oil and wine, and set him on his own beast, and brought him to an inn, and took care of him. And on the morrow, when he had departed, he took out two pence, and gave them to the host, and said unto him, Take care of him, and whatsoever thou spendest more, when I come again, I will repay. Now, when we go back to verse 30, Jesus says that there was a guy, a certain man, he went down from J- Jerusalem to Jericho. Jesus is very specific about where he's traveling. And that actually helps us to understand uh, the picture that Jesus is painting here. Because from Jerusalem to Jericho was a 17-mile journey. When you go roundabout, there was, a, there was a faster way to go, but the road that went from Jerusalem to Jericho would have been 17 miles. It drops more than 1,000 feet in elevation. The country was wild country. There were lots of places for robbers and thieves to hide. Now the reason, and, and the lawyer would have known that. The people that Jesus was talking to, they would have understood this perfectly. The reason for such a distance was because the Jews used this road to bypass Samaritan territory. The Jews hated the Samaritans. They wouldn't walk through it. And so they would go around Samaritan territory and take the long way, even the dangerous way, just to avoid the people that they looked down on. Everybody following that? They hated the Samaritans. So this Jewish man who's on this journey was attacked in this dangerous country. He was robbed, the Bible says. He was beaten and he was left to die, half dead. This certain man who fell among thieves is actually representative of all mankind. Here's the illustration that Jesus is giving. And I want you to see what happened to him because we find a threefold misery here. The Bible says, first of all, in verse 30, that he fell among thieves, which stripped him of his raiment. Now remember, he's representative of all people, of all mankind. And the Bible says that he was stripped of his raiment. Let me make an application here. Because ever since the fall of Adam in the Garden of Eden, mankind has been going down farther and farther and farther away from God. We've not been moving closer to God. We've fallen into the clutches of sin. We are uh, uh, enslaved to our iniquity. We've been stripped of a raiment of righteousness, the Bible says, and a garment of praise. We're not good people. When God looks at us, He doesn't see righteousness. He doesn't see, oh, you've got a lot of good works. In fact, you've been stripped of a raiment of righteousness. Then we find that He was wounded. No doubt when those robbers came, he tried to fight. But they overpowered him, and they beat him. They defeated him. They bruised him. They bloodied him. And they left him to die. Do you know that we, as mankind, are morally wounded? We're morally out of sorts. We've been beaten. We've been bruised by sin. We cannot overcome it. It's defeated us, and it leaves us to die. Jesus said he was half dead. He was in a wretched condition. You can imagine what his condition was. He was stripped naked. He was beaten. He was bloodied. He was wounded. He can't help himself. He can't even crawl uh, to his feet to try to go do something. He's about ready to die. He couldn't do anything for himself. The only hope that this man had laying on the side of the road was for a passing stranger to come by and have compassion on him and show him mercy. He was about to die. But you know, that's the condition of all of us. We're not good people. 
The Bible tells us we're dead in trespasses and sins. We cannot help ourselves find favor with God. What we need is someone to have compassion on us, to have mercy on us, or we will surely die. That's what we are. Not only is there a threefold misery here, but we find a threefold test. Notice this in verse 31. Jesus tells of three men that pass this way, testing their compassion and helping this one that's in need. And what we find is that two fail the test and one passes the test. And what we're going to see here is that these are representative of attitudes of the heart. Notice in verse 31, And by chance there came down a certain priest that way, and when he saw him, he passed by on the other side. And likewise a Levite, when he was at the place, came and looked on him and passed by on the other side. But a certain Samaritan, as he journeyed, came where he was, And when he saw him, he had compassion on him. He went to him and bound up his wounds, pouring in oil and wine, and set him on his own beast and brought him to an inn and took care of him. First of all, consider the priest in verse 31. This priest comes along. He sees what's going on. I don't want anything to do with that. And he passes by on the other side. It represents those who are religious, perfectly religious, but completely indifferent to the needs of others. He came along and then he stepped over to the opposite side of the road to avoid. Why did he do that? Because what he was doing was trying to avoid any kind of ceremonial contamination with this stranger. He's still in his righteousness and self-righteousness trying to keep the law. And he doesn't want to contaminate himself ceremonially with this stranger. He had both opportunity and knowledge, but he was uncaring toward the needs of others. Why did he have that attitude of heart? Because he thought he was better than other people. In keeping with the ceremonial law, and doing his duty, he would cross every T, he would dot every I, but a needy, dying brother on the wayside was not worthy of his notice. He's a religious hypocrite. He's heartless. He's selfish towards the needs of mankind. You know, people can get that way all the time. I'm right with God, I'm a Christian. I go to church, I'm living my life, but they never see the needs of a lost and dying world around them. They won't lift a finger to try to influence somebody else and point them to Jesus Christ. Verse 32 talks about a Levite. The Levite came this way, he did the same thing, but the Bible says he even came and looked on him. But then he passed by on the other side. Do you know that both of these were obligated according to the law to help a neighbor in need? They absolutely were. But they were also obligated to not defile themselves by touching a dead body. This man is a type of those who might be inquisitive, but they are not compassionate. They want to be in the know about things. They want to know what's going on, but they don't want to actually put any effort in and step up to actually help somebody. They might be the kind of people that like to tell others what's wrong with them, but they're not willing to walk through fire to help them. You know, the Bible tells us that we ought to, we ought to uh, you know, stand up for what is right and we ought not to compromise and we ought not to, you know, to compromise truth and so on. But there's so many Pharisees out there who like to point out other people's problems, but they're not willing themselves to say, brother, here's a problem in your life, but I want to walk through this with you and I want to help you. They don't do it in the spirit of meekness, considering thyself, lest thou also be tempted. In their self-righteousness, they want to say, you're wrong, 
I'm right. I'm going to point it out to you. But in reality, they ought to have compassion. And they ought to say, brother, sister, here's something that's in your life and it's not good. And and brother or sister, I want to help you draw close to the Lord. I will walk through this with you so that your relationship with the Lord is even better. This man came and looked. He saw it. He saw the need. But he wasn't willing to do anything about it. He passed by on the other side. By the way, both of these men were religious. A priest and a Levite. They both did religious work. But let me just say this. Doing Christian work does not make the worker Christian. Do you understand that? Doing some religious things doesn't mean that you're a Christian. And then we see the Samaritan. Verse 33. And I love this. Because the Bible says that this certain Samaritan... Now again, remember, the Jews took the long way around to avoid Samaria. They hated Samaritans. But here comes along a Samaritan. And the Bible says that as he journeyed, he came where he was. And when he saw him, he had compassion on him. And notice this. He went to him and bound up his wounds, pouring in oil and wine, and set him on his own beast and brought him to an inn and took care of him. And on the morrow, when he departed, he took out two pence and gave them to the host and said unto him, Take care of him, and whatsoever thou spendest more, when I come again, I will repay. What we find here is that although the Jews had no dealings with the Samaritans, this Samaritan, in mercy, would have dealings with this half-dead Jew. And this is the point of the parable. There's one who is despised. He's a Samaritan. The despised one has compassion on another one. And he shows mercy and he saves one who is actually his enemy. Do you see that? And by doing this, what he's doing is showing the love of God in Christ Jesus, which stoops down to show mercy with a self-sacrifice that conquers the enmity that's there. What I'm saying is this is a picture of Jesus Christ. The good Samaritan bears the features of the Lord Jesus Christ himself, the despised one who comes to seek and to save that which was lost. Listen, in my, in my condition, I was an enemy of God. You're an enemy of God in your natural condition. You don't have a relationship with God. You're half dead. You're about to die. And what you need is somebody to come and have compassion on you. That's the Lord Jesus Christ. But you're an enemy of Him. He's the despised one. And He's coming to show mercy on your sincere soul. Notice a few things here. Verse 33 says that he came to where he was. He came to him. Christ comes to us where we are, in our stripped and wounded condition, where we could do nothing to save ourselves. The Lord Jesus Christ comes to where we are. You cannot come to him. You cannot work your way to him. He came to where we were. In Romans chapter 5 and verse 6, For when we were yet without strength, in due time Christ died for the ungodly. And then it goes on to say this, For scarcely for a righteous man will one die, yet peradventure, perhaps, for a good man, some would even dare to die. But God, He commendeth or proved His love toward us, in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. Not only did he come to where he was, but the Bible says in verse 33 that he had compassion on him. His whole heart 
was moved toward this man in need. But did you know that Jesus was moved with compassion on me and he loved me and he gave himself for me when he saw my spiritual condition? He didn't want me to stay in the same wretched lost condition that I was in. He wasn't willing that I should perish And he was moved with compassion, even for my soul. The kind of compassion that caused him to give himself for my sake and for yours. He didn't just point out my problems, friend. Do you understand that? That's not what Jesus did. Jesus didn't just point out my problems and sit in judgment. He gave himself in order that I might be set free from the bondage of sin that I was in. And I'm saying we ought to be moved with compassion for the lost around us as well. But especially we ought to be moved with compassion for our own brothers and sisters in Christ. And like I said, so often people like to observe. They like to point out other people's problems, but they'll never lift a finger or sacrifice themselves in the spirit of meekness to help an erring brother. Why is that? That is not like Jesus Christ. That is not Christ-like at all. But this Samaritan saw him and had compassion on him, and it caused him to be moved to do something about it. That's the Lord Jesus Christ. The Bible says in verse 34 that he bound up his wounds, pouring in oil and wine. You know, we are full of wounds and bruises. The Bible says that we're poor and wretched and blind and naked, that we're wounded, we're bruised, We have open sores. That's the picture that the Bible paints of of our spiritual condition. And even though we're full of wounds and bruises, Christ came to bind up the wounded and the brokenhearted. Luke 4 and verse 18 tells us, The Spirit of the Lord is upon me. Jesus said these words. The Spirit of the Lord is upon me because He hath anointed me to preach the gospel to the poor. He hath sent me to heal the brokenhearted, to preach deliverance to the captives, the recovering of the sight to the blind, and to set at liberty them that are bruised. The Bible tells us, and I wish we had the time to walk through all of these, but not only did this Samaritan man bind up his wounds and pour oil and wine in, but he set him on his own beast. The Bible says that he brought him to an inn. The Bible says that he cared for him. And then in verse 35, he left a promise concerning him. He says, when I come again, I will repay. And I wish we had the time to walk through those in more depth. I'm going to cut out some of this for the sake of time. What I want you to see here is that he dressed the victim's wounds. He let him ride on his own beast while he walked in dangerous territory. He paid money to the innkeeper for extended care. He even promised credit for additional funds if they're needed when he comes again. And I want you to note that everything is touched in this man. His eyes, his heart, his feet, his hands, his thought, his time, his beast, his speech, his money. Everything is touched with compassion toward this one that is in need. The Samaritan showed by his actions what love really is. And it represents Jesus Christ himself and his love toward you and toward me. And in this story, we see the gospel of Jesus Christ. Ever since the Garden of Eden, the human race has been on a journey away from God. We are dead in trespasses and sins already. You don't have to do anything in this life to spend eternity in the lake of fire. We're already born that way. We've been going down, down, down into the valley of sin We've been robbed, we've been beaten, we've been bruised by sin. We cannot help ourselves with religious effort. 
were left on the side of the road, as it were, about to die. And along comes the Good Samaritan himself, the Lord Jesus Christ. He comes in compassion. He gave himself his own lifeblood. He bound up our wounds, carries us to safety. He pays our debt. He guarantees our future. Amen. He's shown mercy to us when we're about to die. So here's the application. Go to verse 36. And I'll wrap it up here. Jesus, after he tells this parable, he asks the question back to the man, to the lawyer. He says, Which now of these three thinkest thou was neighbor unto him that fell among thieves? And he said, He that showed mercy on him. Then said Jesus unto him, Go and do thou likewise. We see at least two main points of this parable here. The first has application to those of us who are already saved, we're born again. And the second application gets to the main purpose of the parable, and it's for those who still need to be saved. They need to be converted. There's an application for the believer here. For those of you who are saved, in verse 36 and verse 37, Jesus presses home the point of the parable to this religious man. He says, which of these three do you think was a neighbor to the man who fell among thieves? What was the man's question? Who is my neighbor? Right? So Jesus tells the story and he says, okay, now that you've heard the story, which of these three is actually the real neighbor to the man who was in need? Well, the expert in the law, he replies, well, the one who had mercy on him. And Jesus says, that's right, go and do likewise. The question here, friend, is not who is my neighbor, but rather am I being neighborly to everyone, even my enemies? This is the application for the saved person. The, the question is not, who is my neighbor? To, I, oh, I love those in my inner circle. The question is, am I being like Jesus Christ? Am I being neighborly, if you will, even to my enemies? The law expert put emphasis on whether a person was worthy of love. Who's my neighbor? But Jesus put the emphasis on the one who does the loving. It's your responsibility. The lawyer wanted a definition that gave some limitations. To ask who is my neighbor is to look for a loophole by focusing on, on what other people have claim on my life and on my time. But to ask whose neighbor am I is to focus on my responsibility to all people around me for the cause of Christ. Do you understand that? First and foremost, as Christian people, we are debtors to all men over the gospel. Paul said that. He said that himself. I'm a debtor to the Jew, to the Greek, to the barbarian, to the Scythian, to all of these. I'm debtor to all men to preach the gospel. We're a debtor to them, but you know what? We cannot show the love of Jesus Christ and the nature of the gospel if we are not willing to have compassion on the souls of men. The law expert, he gave the right answers. He even gave the right answer about this question, who's my neighbor, when Jesus said, which one of these is the neighbor to really the neighbor? He says, oh, the one who had mercy. He gave the right answers, but I want you to notice that he, he couldn't even say the word Samaritan. Jesus said, which of these three is the neighbor? He says, well, the one who had mercy. But Jesus told him, well, you need to go and do just like this Samaritan did. Not just once, but as a lifestyle of loving servanthood. And what I'm saying here, Christian, this application is for you. Brothers, sisters in the Lord, be careful about religious pride. It's everywhere. We like to stand on what we think is true and... We even like to 
point out the faults of others sometimes. But if we're not willing to have compassion and we're not willing to, in the spirit of meekness, walk through the trial with people, we can just be religious hypocrites. It can become an excuse or a justification for excluding others that we don't like. And the ironic thing here was that the priest and the Levite, they were to be public servants. They were to serve as public health officials. And part of what the Levite was to do was to even to distribute funds and food to the poor and the needy. That was part of his job. He saw the need, but he walked by on the other side. So listen to what I'm saying here. The religious people in this story gave the right answers, but they didn't actually apply what they knew. They spent all their time, quote, worshiping, doing the religious thing, but it never worked itself out practically in their life. Christian people can be the same way. We can say, I know what's true and I know what's right, but is it working itself out practically in our life towards other people? God gave them the law, but the spirit of the law never got through to them. God's presence never got through to them. And you know what? We can sing praise to the Lord. We can sing great is our God. We can worship God. We can do all the things that we think are worthy you know, to praise the Lord, and yet we can walk right by needy people without a care for their soul. Is that Christ-like? It's not. And so we need to be careful about religious pride. We can give all the right answers, but fail to actually apply it in our life toward other people. And the second application, and I'll close with this, is for the unbeliever. The question, what must I do to inherit eternal life? That's the most important question a person could ever ask. How do I have eternal life? The primary purpose of this parable was to convince those who think that they're good enough to realize that there's no way to have eternal life by doing some good works. And they ought to forget trying to justify themselves in the eyes of God. That will never work. A person is not ever going to be good enough, but there is one who is good enough. It's the Lord Jesus Christ. And Jesus was trying to point out to this man, you cannot earn favor with God by the things that you do. We need to put our faith and our trust in Jesus Christ. And the challenge for you this morning, if you're here and you're not saved, maybe you think you have a relationship with God. Maybe you've done a lot of, quote, good things in your mind. But the challenge is don't be like this religious man. Instead of being justified in the eyes of ourselves, which is what that man did, we're only justified by throwing ourselves on the mercy of God and saying, Lord, I'm a sinner. I can't. I need the Lord Jesus Christ. Don't miss the main message of that story. It's impossible to live up to God's standard of holiness. The demands of God's law, they're still here. They still stand. The law doesn't save us, but the law shows us that we need saving. That's why we need a substitute. One who will take our place. And that's what Jesus Christ himself did. And so, here's the message for those who are lost, those who are still lying on the road, wounded, bleeding, forgotten, dying. It's a message for those who might feel hopeless or helpless. We're dead in trespasses and sins. We're, we're condemned already, the Bible says. 
There's nothing we can do to earn favor with God. But Jesus Christ came to save us. He came to where we were in our rotten, wounded, bruised condition. He gave himself and his lifeblood so that we could be set free. If you're here today and you're not saved, you need to give your heart to the Lord. You need to repent of your sin. You need to realize what you are. In your spiritual condition, it's condemned before God. You need to believe on the Lord Jesus Christ today. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, I pray that you'd use your word today. And I don't know how you may have spoken to hearts, but Lord, I know the message is true. And I pray that, Lord, whether a person is saved and they... Spirit of God is pointed at something in their life, or whether a person's lost. They've been religious, but they're still lost. Lord, I pray that you draw them to the Lord Jesus Christ. May your will be done in these moments, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.